Praise be Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to our first episode of season six. We're so glad to be back. Um, so glad to be joined by you once again to uh, talk about these different Carmelite topics throughout this season. Um, glad to be joined by Father Pier Giorgio of Christ the King. Father Pier Giorgio now, right? <laughs> yes, you were there. You were there. Yes. I was there. It was, yes. it was exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Praise God for a, a, another priest uh, in the church. Very grateful for that. Um, I'm Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified, and uh, we're, yeah, we're excited to be back for another season. We're going to mix things up a little bit this season. Um, we actually, we got a lot of great feedback from the last season. A lot of people really enjoyed the book study, um, and so we're hoping to do another one of those in the spring. Um we're not positive yet which book that'll be, but we'll let you know. Um, but for this season, for this fall, what we're really hoping to do is to kind of, yeah, a different perspective. Um, we're going to be, thanks to a lot of the feedback actually of our listeners, a, lo a lot of people were interested in hearing about the different ways that one can belong to the Carmelite family. And so that's one thing that we're going to be doing this season is we're going to be interviewing various people who are Carmelites, Discalce Carmelites, um, in different ways and talking with them about their vocations, about, um, yeah, their lives. Um, but before that, what we're going to do in each episode is just kind of have a, a grab bag of different topics, things that are of interest, uh, based on either your recommendations or things that are of interest to Father Pier Giorgio and I, um, yeah, just various topics. It'll be kind of a surprise each week, maybe even a surprise to us what we end up talking <laughs> about. But I think it'll be uh, it'll be fruitful. To start for this week, then for our 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 topic of this week is I just wanted to introduce um, this idea of like what is the Discalced Carmelite charism and what does it mean to belong to the Discalced Carmelites? Um, because I think often when we think of the Discalced Carmelites, we think of either the friars or the nuns. And really, um, if you look at numbers, that's a very small, very, very small fraction of the entire Carmelite family. It's interesting, too, because I think of the fa different parts of the family, we're, we're maybe the smallest. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, uh, that's one, true. One stat that I, I think it's still true, but one stat that, that comes up uh, if you, you hear it occasionally is that the nuns outnumber the friars four to one, which is... Yes. Which is pretty, I don't know, it's not surprising to me because I know how many nuns there are. <laughs> but right. uh, it's interesting to think about, you know, the different ways to be a Carmelite. And, you know, some of the most common ways are the most hidden ways, too, which is kind of interesting. Yes. Yeah, actually, that's a great point that it seems as, yeah, as the um, the numbers grow, they tend to be in a ways like even more hidden. I think that even a lot of these, a lot of our listeners probably belong to the Carmelite family in one way or another, without even necessarily knowing that they belong uh, to the Carmelite family. And so that's one thing that we really want to highlight uh, throughout this season is how um, one can belong in in these many varied ways, and how this all works together towards the Carmelite charism and towards building up the body of Christ, um, and really working towards uh, growing towards the kingdom of heaven. And so. I guess, yeah, I don't know, one, to put you on the spot now, now, Father Pier Giorgio, um, I think one thing, going, diving into this conversation that's important is is the idea of a charism, um, because that's what really what we're talking about, is belonging to a, 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 the Discalced Carmelite charism. 
So what would you say, like, how would you describe, like, what is a charism to someone? So I think, first of all, charism is a movement of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life. And it's a movement towards, ultimately towards generosity, I think. The ways in which we can be generous of ourselves towards the church. And so we speak about like charismatic gifts, for instance. And so that, that word, that part of that word charism or charismatic is uh, it's, it's oriented towards, it's oriented exteriorly. It's oriented towards the church. It's oriented towards um, their gifts for others, their gifts for the church. And so a charism more generally then is something ultimately for the church, but it's sort of a categorization of what it is that um, orients our life towards service in the kingdom. Um, and that can look, sometimes it's more hidden, sometimes it's more visible. You know, different charisms have, um, I guess, different, different visibilities, I guess you could say. Right. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it's oriented towards generosity. It's the ways in which we're, we're generous um, toward the church and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it really makes me think of um, St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12. It's where he talks about um, basically how we all belong. We are belong to this one body, uh, which is the church, but that we're many, many different members. And in that passage, he talks about... Um, he says, like, now you are now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, uh, workers of miracles, healers, helpers, administrators. And then he makes a big point of like, well, are we are we all teachers? No. Are we all apostles? No. Um, do we all possess these same gifts? No. Um, but rather that God calls each of us in a our, our own sort of way um, to bring about, to bring about this complete whole, which is the church. And so a charism then, so for example, the Discalce Carmelite charism would be one way in which um, certain people are called really to build up the body of Christ, are called to, to, um, to belong to the church. And I think that it's, I mean, I'm, I'm rather biased because I'm a Discalced Carmelite friar, but I think it's, it's a beautiful way to belong to the church. It's something very special about what it means to be a Catholic um, in being a Carmelite. Um, so, yeah, so what would you say, like, to put you on the spot again, how would you describe then, like, the Carmelite charism? What is, what is specifically unique about the Carmelite charism that kind of differentiates it perhaps from, um, I don't know, an, another charism of the church? Yeah, I think what ultimately distinguishes the different charism, charisms in the church is where they come from, or more importantly, uh, through whom they manifest. And so the Discalced Carmelite charism, you know, ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit, um, but it's it's manifested through uh, the life, the teaching, the person of, generally speaking, a religious founder. Um, so the Franciscan charism to use a, an example that's not Carmelite, <laughs> the Franciscan charism is manifested through St. Francis. And so it even has his name in it. So there's something personal to it. And so the Carmelite charism, um, one major uh, branch of that comes through St. Teresa of Jesus. And so we speak of the Theresian charism. Uh, so I think it's interesting that all these charisms, they usually have someone's name in them because that aspect of personality 
of the founder or foundress is is essential to it because it's it's a it's a reception by that saint um and then given and then given to the church in a special way yeah we see just how like relational and um personal the call is to be i mean in general just to be a christian right the fact that christianity is named after a person the person of of jesus christ um it's not it's something that's been incarnated and embodied in our in our real world world and then even the way that we live out christianity then through these charisms is again it's like more specifically embodied through particular people in a in particular circumstances um it's it's very it's relational it's it's family oriented or relation oriented which ultimately then is a a sign or a symbol of um our relation with the greatest of all relations the holy trinity and how we're called to to uh, imitate and to participate in that relationship mm-hmm. yeah and so when we when we speak of you know my personal charism there you know there's there is there is something unique in that for me uh but also knowing that that uh you know as creative and as generous as god is um we can identify with uh different existing charisms already that that sort of speak to us um and so each individual who lives a charism is living it in their own way in that personal way because ultimately it's it's christocentric it's it's centered around our relationship with jesus our relationship uh with the most holy trinity and that looks different for everybody but at the same time you know we have to pick a teacher we have to we have to say you know who's going to teach me about um, this relationship that I want to have with the Most Holy Trinity. And there are certain teachers who, you know, they resonate with us. They speak to us. Um, and we, we, we seek them out in a sort of discipleship way um, to be disciples of these, of these great founders. And that's, I think that's where kind of the more, you know, categorization starts to come in, identifying within ourselves, you know, a gift, and then seeing, okay, well, how has God used other people with this gift throughout the history of the church? And then being able to to say, okay, now where do I go from here? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes me think of, I mean, really, what is this, um, what does it look like to live the, Car- the Discalced Carmelite Charism? As you mentioned, like embodied in particular through St. Teresa of Jesus. And I, I think, at least from my perspective, it's really this, this zeal and desire for intimacy with God and, and intimacy with God in this like direct, like unmediated way, this willingness to, to leave all behind and to strive towards this union um, with Christ as our beloved, as our friend, um, and particularly through prayer, I think. Mm-hmm. The, that's, I, I would say, like my like short summary of how I would s- describe uh, the discalced Carmelite charism. I don't know. You probably have maybe a slightly different words that you would use, but similar, similar idea. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, oftentimes what people are looking for is that is that like really short snippet of of what. Okay, so what is it that you're about? Why are you different? Why are you different from the Franciscans? Why are you different from the Dominicans? And you know, if if we were, I mean, this is real boiled down, but like prayer. <laughs> <laughs> prayer right relationship with with jesus relationship with the trinity uh is our charism um yes. you know dominicans preaching right uh yes. franciscans you know uh helping the poor um and radical poverty like that's their charism they live it really well yeah. um 
our charism, the gift that we've been given that, that we're tasked to live really well is, is prayer and to be able to talk about it and teach people about it yes. and to live it and be witnesses of it in the church and the importance of it. Yes. Cause it's important for everybody, but I think, yes. I think it's an aspect of witness. that's important as well. Yes. I think that's key is that, um, these aren't saying that like, well, this is something that just one particular charism holds rights to because it's really, again, it's the whole church. We're all called to these things. We're all called to poverty. We're all called to preach and teach. We're all called to prayer. Um, but there are certain individuals are called to do that in a particularly like focused way. So a charism then is almost like this magnifying glass over one aspect of the church. And just like, you know, the magnifying glass can really like focus and like create this intense energy, like burning energy that sets things aflame. Um, I think that's really what a, what a charism is. And so, yeah, you know, you're going to have Carmelites that are drawn to um, other charisms as well. And in any person in the world, even though they may take up and claim, like feel drawn towards one charism more than another, the reality is that like we all are called to embody all of these charisms in some way. Um, but there are going to be particular ways based on our, own upbringing or personality or just God's call um, that are going to be more particular that resonate more which is the word you used earlier which I think is really good that resonate with a particular charism mm -hmm. yeah good so what are the different ways <laughs> yes that, that, the, that the charism manifests itself <laughs> yeah so for the the discalced Carmelite friars I think I mean again like a lot of these are gonna be really obvious to people the way that you can be a discalced Carmelite um, Again, most people would think of the nuns. I mean, even more so than the friars, I think that people think of the discalced Carmelite nuns because of our saints, the great saints of, you know, Teresa of Avila and Therese and Elizabeth of the Trinity. Um, that's often the mind, the mind, the image that comes to people's mind when they think of the Carmelites. But also uh, then the friars, and that's, I mean, us, that's, we're called to live that charism in a particular way. Um, but more than that, I think, and again, I think, almost anyone listening to this will probably be surprised that they actually belong in some way to the discalced Carmelite charism, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, so other ways that you can belong to or share in this charism is uh, one is like there are certain, there are groups of active sisters that live out the Carmelite charism. So our nuns, you know, they're cloistered. They live lives of intense um, prayer and enclosure where we have other groups of active sisters who serve um, in different ways in the church. And we're actually, we're going to be, um, in a later episode, we're going to have an interview with one of those active sisters. So you can hear a little bit about the way that they're called to live the charism in particular. Um, the largest group probably, or one of the largest groups of, of living our charism is the, the secular order of discalced Carmelites. And there are thousands of these people um, throughout the world, um, really even thousands even in our own country and so these are lay people who are living in the world with regular jobs regular families who are called in a more um, intentional way to live the Carmelite charism and we're going to have an interview in a later episode with one of those too so I won't go too much now into the details of what that life looks like um, but even apart from that there are other ways um, if if a person is enrolled in the scapular, if they wear the brown scapular, that's a way of participating and sharing in the Carmelite charism. And then even like even more broad than that, I think that there are thousands and thousands of people who, um, particularly through their love for the Carmelite saints, through their interest in Carmelite spirituality, they in some way also they participate and share in this Carmelite charism. 
Yeah, and there's there's also you know numerous um, on local levels and throughout the world different religious communities that have adopted a more a Theresian charism, a Carmelite charism in some way. They might not be formally a part of the Discalced Carmelite order, but they've they've taken you know taken Teresa themselves in their religious life um, as as the teacher of of their charism. And there's numerous of those, too many to name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm really excited for these interviews because they're going to be a way that um, at the end of each of these episodes this season, we're just going to talk to these people. We're going to have a, a Carmelite nun that we're going to interview. We're going to have a friar. Um, these All these different ways of belonging to the Carmelite family, and we're going to talk with them about the way, the particular way. So we talked about how the a charism is like kind of a magnifying glass over the entire church, but even then within that charism, the specific Discalced Carmelite charism, there's a, another magnifying glass that even further focuses what does it mean to live um, this particular life. So we're going to be able to talk with these people about their vocations, how did they know that they were called to this life, and what does that life look like, how is it actively lived in their particular circumstance and their particular time. Yeah. Um, I guess just like one more thing to kind of, before we before we end then is, um, just to say the kind of the, the bigger picture of how all these people interact with one another um, in the Carmelite family. Because we say like it's one family um, and it really truly is in the sense of like we belong to this same charism, um, but we're all called to live in different ways. So a friar is not called to live in the same way as a nun and the nun is not called to, to live in the same way as the, the secular uh, order member who has a job and a family. And so there's like this really then this beautiful interaction um, and service of one another, but also um, like supporting one another um, in, in this, this Carmelite family. So for our first interview, we sat down with Father Kevin of the Holy Trinity, a discalced Carmelite for many years. And we're going to talk to him about, uh, you'll hear from him about all of the many ways in which he's lived the Carmelite charism over the course of his life as a friar. But even within the friars, the different roles that he's lived and filled um, in service to the Discalced Carmelite Order. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. So today we're joined by Father Kevin Culligan. Father Kevin, thank you for joining us and answering our questions about the life and vocation of a Discalced Carmelite friar. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope there's enough time. <laughs> Got a lot to talk about. Oh, of course. Well, uh, could you just introduce yourself? Well, uh, I was born Gerald James Culligan in Chicago, Illinois, 1935, and uh, into an Irish Catholic family. Uh, we moved to California when I was seven, and I was raised in um, the West Coast in Southern California under the influence of the Jesuits. I went to a Jesuit high school and a Jesuit college in Seattle, Washington, and then joined the Carmelites in 1955. When I joined the Carmelites, I joined this province, which we call the Washington province, or the province of um, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, simply because uh, although there were Carmelites whom I discovered, the Discalced Carmelites out in California, they were Irish missionaries from Ireland. So they didn't have a formation program. Mm. So they recommended that I come back to the uh, Washington province and join here, which was fine with me because originally we're Midwesterners and our 
family roots are Midwestern. So this was very familiar, and it was, I've been uh, very, very happy. They haven't kicked me out, <laughs> and I haven't left. And so, uh, and it's been almost, uh, well, that was 55. And um, uh, I haven't been at Holy Hill all these years. I've been, uh, the novitiate was in, in Brookline, Massachusetts, and then three years here at Holy Hill, four years in Washington studying theology, and I was ordained in Washington by uh, Auxiliary Bishop Hannon of Washington in um, Washington, D.C. at the National Shrine. And then after that, um, they didn't think I had enough education, so they sent me back to school, and I got a master's degree in clinical psychology at Marquette. And then by that time, I was spitten, smitten by the possibilities of psychology for spirituality. So I uh, asked to be allowed to study, um, go on for graduate studies, a PhD in psychology of religion, which I was, uh, uh, was able to do at Boston University and ended up getting a PhD from Boston University in the psychology of religion. Um, and then uh, after that, I've been done formation work. I haven't been novice master. They spared me that, but I've been brother director. I've been student director two times. Uh, I've been a local superior. I've been, uh, and I've taught. I've taught at Loyola College in Baltimore. I've taught at Marquette. I've uh, and done some teaching within the communities. Uh, been part of the Carmelite Forum, so I've been able to share the education and then do some administrative work. Until about uh, six years ago, I started to run out of gas. I had to go into the hospital uh, to get recharged. And after six months, after battling through what they call senile depression uh, and other dimensions, I uh, came here and I've been here for six years. And I guess you'd say semi-retired. Yeah, and you've been you've been teaching the students here well, in these last few years. Well, actually, I have been. I've been teaching uh, primarily uh, Saint John of the Cross. Saladonio teaches Saint Teresa, and Father Philip teaches Saint Teresa. So uh, I thought they needed a good dose of Saint John of the Cross. And fortunately, I did my doctoral dissertation on Saint John of the Cross. So all I had to do was go back and start thumbing through my doctoral dissertation, and I was prepared for class. And of course, their questions and their interests just stimulated me to be able to make it as current and as contemporary as we could. So, yeah. how did the friars, the Discalce Carmelite friars, get started? What was, how did that all happen? What was their purpose? What were they created for? Who created them? Well, of course, the Carmelites started in the 12th, 13th century, mm -hmm. and then they developed and went through all of the. Uh, ups and downs of religious life in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century. And then they, uh, the Carmelites were in Spain in the 16th century and in need of reform uh, following Council of Trent, as uh, were many other religious communities. And um, uh, at that time, providentially, along came Teresa of Jesus. And um, uh, in the 16th century Spain, in the city of Avila, uh, God so worked in her life that uh, he inspired her and gave her many graces to, to reform the Carmelite order. And, and basically to restore it to a kind of eremitical contemplative 
life rather than a very, very active mendicant life. Uh, she began with the nuns, then she continued with the friars, and then the discalced really she didn't intend to found a new order, but in order for there to be a reform, a new order had to be established. So it became known as the discalced or the barefooted friars and nuns, uh, and sometimes called Theresian Carmelites because they were really founded by uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. And that began in the 16th century and spread throughout Europe and then eventually came to the United States. Came a little late to the United States. Although the nuns came early, they came right after the uh, American Revolution. And uh, for a number of historical reasons, they were able to get founded in Maryland. The friars really didn't come to this country significantly until the 20th century. And so nuns, there's Carmelite sisters, there's uh, Carmelite, discalced Carmelite seculars. Right. How do the friars fit into that sort of family? Well, the nuns, of course, Teresa started out to found the nuns, or to reform the nuns. She thought she was only going to establish one community, but that began to grow. Then she got the idea that if they were going to have reformed Carmelite nuns, they should have friars who knew something about the reform. So she, uh, starting with John of the Cross and a few others, uh, uh, invited them to join her so that there would be a men to associate with the Carmelite nuns as their directors, uh, as their confessors, and as their teachers to uh, give the history and the spirituality of Carmel. So by the time she died, and I think it was 1582, a new province had been started. It was both friars and nuns, and uh, it's been that way ever since. But the friars are primarily mendicant, and uh, so that's an interesting part of the Carmelite history is, uh, are we hermits? Are we monks? Are we friars? And you, in some ways you could say we're all three, at least there are elements of the mon monastic life, the mendicant life, and the eremitical life. In among the Carmels, and uh, uh, and the friars uh, really uh, basically juridically are mendicants, and we've developed that way historically. So we're somewhat similar to the Dominicans and the uh, Franciscans and the Augustinians. So how does the the discount the life of a discount Carmelite friar look in your particular? your particular life? What, what's, uh, what's a day in the life of Father Kevin like? <laughs> well, I get up in the morning at five. <laughs> I, I try to get up in the morning at five. Get myself ready for a little brief breakfast alone uh, and then some prayer before our official morning prayer and then some more prayer in our Mass. So the, the day begins with, with prayer, both contemplative prayer or mental prayer or um, spiritual reading, mass, divine office. And so by nine o'clock, that's under, that's behind. And the day is off to a good start. Mm -hmm. And if, if you feel like you've not done anything else in the world, at least you've begun praying. You've been glorifying God. You've been praying for uh, uh, peace in the world. You've been praying for the conversion of sinners. You've been praying for growth of holiness in the church. All these things you've done by nine o'clock in the morning. So 
if nothing else happens during the day, you can feel you've done something worthwhile <laughs> and for the life of the church and, and all. So then for me and for a large part of my life, I try to spend as much of the morning as I can and with my primary interest is, is I have to say it's, it's literary. I'd like to, well, I, not, not only would, I like to think of myself as a writer, editor, uh, a, a literary person. So uh, over the course of the years, I've done some editing of different books, most of this for ICS publication. I've done some writing, mostly articles that have appeared in, in either psychology or spirituality journals. So as much of the morning as I can devote to the literary desires that I have, uh, the literary tradition of Carmel is just outstanding, as you know. Uh, uh, whether you begin with John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila, whether you move into the current times of Edith Stein, uh, and you go through our history, it, it, it's, it's a strong literary tradition, and I just love to be a part of it and, and love to see our own province having worked with the ICS publications and brought that about. Um, so that's where my niche has been, and uh, here at Holy Hill, I usually uh, in the mornings help with the confessions, help with uh, people who come to want to talk to a priest, uh, some spiritual direction. And that's about it in terms of the morning. In the afternoon, uh, uh, after lunch, uh, uh, a nice siesta for sure, and um, a little more work. It could be answering mail, it could be catching up on the library, uh, and then it's time to pray, it's time to uh, eat, it's time to watch the Cubs on television, and it's then time to go to bed. So, so that's, that's a day in the life of, of this Carmelite friar. And I, I'm, I can't say it's the life of every Carmelite friar, but mm. it's, it's been my life pretty much for many years. Yeah, and I, I feel like all of our friars, um, even the ones who are very active and active apostolates, there's a sense in which many of them, most of them, a part of their day is, is sort of quiet work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether yeah. it's study, whether, yeah. it's, whether yeah. it's writing, whether yeah. it's editing, whether yeah. it's translating. So yeah. there's, there is, yeah. I mean, in our, in our activity even, there yeah. is kind of a quiet aspect to yeah. that. Well, much of what the friars do, like if we're ordained, uh, we're ordained to preach. And, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> they tell the story about uh, the preacher who, uh, dreamt that, uh, or the priest who dreamt that he was giving a sermon, then he woke up and discovered he was. <laughs> so that's what happens if you don't prepare. And in order to prepare a good sermon, you've got to study. You've got to, you know, consult the scriptures. You've got to consult the background of the, the liturgy of the day and whatnot. So, you know, to get a good 10-minute sermon together, you can spend s several hours, m more than that, during the course of a week. Mm -hmm or the night before, but you know, you've got to put a little time into it and most of it has to be quiet and it has to be studious. Of course. If we, do, we give a lot of retreats, we do conferences. If you're teaching, you know, again, like um, they say a good teacher prepares two hours for every hour in class. So if you have two or three hours a week, that's another six hours a week just studying to prepare for classes. Mm -hmm. So, and I, w I wouldn't say my life is typical of the friars, but 
uh, it's been mixed with a lot of activities, and most of these activities do require you just have to sit down and do it and prepare it. What would be one piece of advice that, that you would give to someone who's maybe discerning a call to be a friar in particular? Well, uh, I think back on that a lot. What is it that attracted me, uh, having gone to a Jesuit university, uh, Jesuit high school, and had a profound influence, which I, to this day I'm very grateful for. That I've got a few scars, but I'm very grateful for what the Jesuits gave me over a six-year period. But uh, something about the Jesuits just didn't appeal to me. I also had a brother who was a Trappist. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, a brother, brother of mine, he's deceased now, but he joined the Trappist. He didn't remain, he just remained up until through the novitiate and then decided before vows to leave. So, so I had the image of what it was to be a Trappist and that appealed to me, but not completely. And so I was saying if, there is an attraction, and much of this attraction was stimulated by Thomas Merton, reading his Seven Story Mountain and his journey. And I said, if I could find something in between the two. The, I, I didn't want to be a Jesuit because I, I thought the academic life would be good, but I didn't want to spend a life as a priest in a classroom, and that was just my own preference. Trappist would be good. Um, but I didn't want to spend my life, if I was going to be a priest, uh, uh, shoveling out barns and things like that. So, I said, But if I could find something in between um, that combined uh, something of the academic or the ministry like the Jesuits and, and something contemplative like the Trappist, that, that, I'd be for that. So somebody said, well, why don't you start looking at the Dominicans? So I started looking at the Dominicans and the Franciscans and eventually ended up looking at the Discalced Carmelites. And uh, for a number of reasons, uh, this appealed to me. And uh, uh, having, you know, met some of the Irish Carmelites who ran a retreat house in Southern California, these, these seemed like solid men to me. I had come to know John of the Cross as a poet when I was a college literary major, literature major. And the fact that this was John of the Cross's order, I didn't know the difference between trees of Avil and trees of Jesus, or trees of, uh, or trees of Avil and trees of the little flower, but anyway, John of the Cross had, was was very appealing to me, and this was his order, and I said, hmm, that makes sense to me, and again, the combination of a contemplative dimension and an active dimension that really appealed to me. So I think part of of what 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 really appeals to you about the various communities. I mean, looking around at the communities and, well, eventually I said, I think I can, I can do this. Maybe God's calling me. <laughs> if he's not, they'll let me know and, or I'll know finding up. And so that's probably the thing, you know, what is it that you really want to do, you like to do, that you feel you're good at, and that you find an order out there that, you know, can absorb those interests and those skills and and those talents, if you have them. And, and for me, it was a good fit. Yeah. And it really has been a good fit all along. And then the grace builds upon the nature of, of what God's created you to like oh, and yeah. what God's created you to be. And <laughs> oh, grace, it's it just, 
it's all grace. I mean, you begin to see after a while, as Teresa says, everything is grace. And then you begin to think, I mean, the fact that I ended up a Carmelite and not a Jesuit or a Trappist, that's grace, pure mm -hmm. grace, you know. The fact that I ended up in this province and not in the California province, that's grace. The fact that as a Carmelite, to do Carmelite ministry, I've been doing ministry on every continent except Antarctica and Antarctica. I said, that's grace. I mean, I thought, I had the idea if I was going to join a religious life, I had the idea from my brother's uh, influence that, well, this, you're going to leave the world behind. You, you, you probably won't see much outside of Wisconsin, but I've seen the world, you know, and I've met the most marvelous people. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly, uh, it's all grace. Yeah. It's all grace. And God, God works. And I didn't want to be a provincial. Uh, I realized that God wanted me to be one for six years, and I learned some things that I never could have learned any place else other than being a provincial for six years. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to study anything but literature or biblical studies as I was going through early formation. And this says, we don't need a biblical scholar, we need a psychologist. And you look like you might be somebody who could study psychology, so you go study psychology, not forget about scripture. It turned out to be pure grace, you know. I, I never would have chosen that in, in, in my wildest dreams. <laughs> and it, it turned out to be a wonderful blessing, not, not because I became a great psychologist, but because I began to see the importance of understanding the human person and how the human person functions and how psychology can help us to understand the human person functions, to see how grace operates in the human person. And that's really what spirituality is, you know, grace operating in human life. Mm -hmm. And to be able to see those two things together was just such an enormous blessing. And to be able to share that, you know, with our own students going on. And so Good. Well, one final question. We spoke a little bit about your love for the Carmelite literary corpus. Mm. What's the one work of required reading for all Catholics, in your opinion? Well, that's a good question. I, it, it, usually, I'd answer probably the current book of Carmel that I'm reading at the moment. If you want an expert opinion, John Tracy Ellis, the great Catholic historian, he's deceased now, but um, said that one of the ten greatest literary compositions in, in uh, history are the letters of Teresa of Avila. Not her mystical treatises, but the letters, the two-volume letters, which Kavanaugh and Rodriguez have translated. And I would have to agree with that. I mean, they are at a level with the Confessions of St. Augustine, the Summa, Thomas, and other uh, quality. I'm not sure what John Tracy Ellis put in the top other nine, but Teresa's letters were in the top ten. And they reveal a, a woman who has just been turned over to the grace of God, or turned her life over to the grace of God, and how that grace has transformed her life. It's just, it's, the, the story is there in the letters. At the moment, uh, since we're talking about Teresa, I'm reading, rereading for the work that I'm doing, uh, The Life of Teresa, uh, the story of her life, and I've read it four or five times, and I would say that's crucial, and I would say anybody who reads that uh, should follow up with reading her meditation on the Song of Songs, which is just seven chapters. 
And that will give you a, a real good feel for the woman that Teresa was, how deep she, she was in love with God, and because she surrendered her life totally and completely into God's hands, God worked in her in ways that she was beyond her imagination. She had no idea that she was going to end up Madre Teresa, you know, the great fundador of the Carmelite order. Beautiful advice, and I love the letters too because they're bite size. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So you can have some sort of longer reading with the autobiography, the book of her life, and then That's also right. That's right. the the commentary on the Song of Songs, yeah. meditation on the Song of Songs, yeah. and then little yeah. bite-sized pieces in those letters, which those are great. letters. Yeah, some are long. Some she's chewing out. You know, some of her uh, Carmelite nuns. You know, <laughs> others. You know, she's giving practical advice. But one of the things her letters reveal in one of her letters is just how fond she was of John of the Cross, who was 27 years younger than she. But she took him as a spiritual director. She recognized that he was a spiritual genius, even as a young priest. And, and then later in that letter said, he truly is the father of my soul. And you can go to him and listen to him as you would to me, to some of her nuns. It, it's so she's got tributes to different people. It, it's, it's just outstanding. You just see a really a fully alive woman, you know, interacting in, in the letters. Well, Father Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to answer these questions. Oh, it's my pleasure. We could go on all afternoon if you <laughs> wanted to. Thank you, Father. You're very welcome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Brother Pier Giorgio here. Thanks for checking out this episode of CarmelCast. If you want to hear more of us, don't forget to click subscribe. Also, be sure to click like if you enjoyed this episode, and maybe even leave us a comment. We post discussion questions down below to get the conversation going. Want more information on Carmelite spirituality and the Discalced Carmelite Saints? Then you'll want to check out our website, www.icspublications.org. There's a link in the description of this episode. From here, you can see all our current promotions and access our complete catalog for the writings of St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and St. Edith Stein. If you want to stay up to date on all our promotions and new titles, then be sure to add your email to our email list. There's no better way to stay up to date on the latest Carmelite publications. Thanks for joining us, and may God bless you.